0: Abolition. 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 day.
1: They are not just gangs of kids anymore. They are often the kinds of kids that are called super predators. No conscience, no empathy. We can talk about why they ended up that way, but first we have to bring them to heal.
2: The super predator myth was a deeply harmful racist fabrication. It was popularized in the mid-1990s. This myth warned of black and brown teenagers perpetrating a violent crime wave. It had a devastating impact on our laws and policies. They are not just gangs of kids anymore. But why did the theory with no basis in reality take hold? Going all the way back to slavery and throughout our history, black children have been robbed of their youth and denied the protections of childhood, along with being presumed guilty and dangerous.
3: Predators on our streets.
2: Tens of thousands of them
3: born out of wedlock, without parents, without supervision, without any structure, without any conscience developing.
1: No conscience, no empathy. We have to bring them to heal. Black children have always
2: been perceived as older than they are, treated as adults, and punished severely. They are not just games
1: of kids anymore.
2: Black children were the human property of slaveholders and therefore not the beneficiaries of whatever rights human beings were afforded. Southern society objectified and viewed black children as valuable commodities. This would evolve into Jim Crow justice for black youth, denying them access to white institutions of reform, rooted in the belief that black youth were undeserving subjects of the white-dominated parental state. To this day, black children suffer the horrifying consequences of this history, including disproportionate and harsh punishment at the
1: hands of our legal
2: system.
3: Predators on our streets.
1: They are not just gangs of kids anymore. We have to bring them to heal
2: a particularly damaging consequence took hold in the 1990s as the war on drugs raged and levels of crime rose around the country instead of seeking to understand and trying to eradicate the root causes of this policymakers the media prosecutors and other powerful stakeholders fell back on the long-held racist dehumanizing narratives about young black boys
4: born out
3: of wedlock without parents without supervision Without any structure, without any conscience, developing.
1: We can talk about why they ended up that way, but first we have to bring them to heal.
3: It doesn't matter whether or not they were deprived as a youth. It doesn't matter or not whether or not they had no background that enabled them to have to uh, become uh, uh, social, uh, become socialized into the fabric of society. It doesn't matter whether or not they're the victims of society.
1: Stories
2: of youth committing crimes were sensationalized regularly, even by trusted news outlets. A Princeton criminologist named John Diulio cemented this racist, fictitious depiction of youth of color, especially black youth, when in 1995 he wrote a standard weekly article called The Coming of the Super Predator. Super Predator, a racist, dehumanizing choice of words, a label assigned to children that treated them as ruthless, wild animals, and in a single turn of phrase, away their
1: humanity
3: predators on our streets
1: they are not just gangs of kids anymore we have to bring them to heal the article in diulio's future publication
2: stated that a juvenile crime wave was double in the next 10 years and stoked a new white fear of black children the claims perpetuated by diulio were discriminatory misguided and above all false Yet as we've seen, Diulio's rhetoric wasn't unique, but rather reflected centuries of American racism. But it did solidify the justification by policymakers that harsh penalties were appropriate for our country's black, indigenous, and children of color, despite the fact that crime rates were already beginning to drop. Within five years of the myth's publication, Diulio began to backtrack suggesting he may have been wrong and recanting his theory. And in 2012, he joined an amicus brief filed by criminologists in Miller v. Alabama, which acknowledged some of the harmful impacts of the theory. In other words, Giulio was saying the myth helped rationalize policies that made it easier to try children as if they were adults, and at younger ages, thus exposing even more children to punitive
1: adult sentences, including life in prison without parole. They are not just gangs of kids anymore. We have to bring them to heal. In states without the death penalty, life without parole was the harshest available sentence for
2: adults. And because of changes to policy in the 1990s, its imposition on children skyrocketed. Over 75% of the 2,800 children ever sentenced to life without parole in the United States were sentenced in the 1990s or later. And although many important reforms have been implemented to mitigate this damage, the human toll it took on the children of color who were disappeared from society because of it and on their families and communities is immeasurable. In order to repair the harm caused by this racist past and the super predator myth in particular, we must embark on a mission of truth telling about its history and impact. And then we must work together to change policies and practices that fail to treat black children like children and continue to perpetuate harm against them. Abolition.
0: Abolition. 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 Abolition.
5: Abolition. Abol- you just heard what we call the use effects. That was the use effect super predators. That was, they were children confronting the super predator myth. It included Hillary Clinton's famous comment about super predators in her 1996 speech, as well as Joe Biden's speech, Predators on Our Streets, in 1993, and that was accompanied by Massive Attack, Super Predators. Peace and welcome to Abolition Today, a weekly syndicated online radio program with a specific focus on modern slavery as it is practiced through the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and by for-profit prisons worldwide. We air live every Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 central 5 mountain and 4 pacific live streams and archive podcasts are available at abolitiontoday.org and on all major streaming platforms my name is yusuf hassan my co-host max parthas has a much needed and well-deserved day off this evening uh and in fact with max i hope you out there you know having some good relaxation maybe uh, have your favorite libation next to you, and still tuned in, of course. Uh, I'm joined this evening by guest co-host Curtis Davis. Curtis is the co-director of state operations of the Abolished Slavery National Network, executive director of Decarcerate Louisiana, and author of Slave State, Evidence of Apartheid in America, which was also made into a um, sorry, into a documentary. So, Curtis, welcome back to the show, brother. You always uh, tuning in, and you always calling in. So, welcome in as a guest host this evening.
6: Love. Uh Thank you for this opportunity, Uh, my abolition family. We out here, we moving, and I have uh, um, the the chance to step into some very big uh, shoes tonight. Max Carthus is. a, a justice hero, a warrior for our causes, with an encyclopedic knowledge of this issue and it would be so nice to at least get him to get on the call later on tonight um I brought some friends with me who um were actually incarcerated from juvenile sixteen year old and he stayed in prison for thirty years um We'll introduce him later through the uh question segment, but thank you for. Let me be on the show tonight, Yusuf. Um, hopefully I can do what needs to be done to do what we do.
5: Oh, for sure. And you have the distinct honor of having stepped in place of both of us. You stood in for me, and now you're standing in for Max. Like, no one has done that before. So you're the first one to have uh, basically uh, subbed in for both of us. So definitely grateful for having you. So let's get into, get into it a little bit. Last week we talked about indoctrination nation targeting children and we broke down the alarming uh, cost of incarceration per child, the minimum age to incarcerate a child, the vast racial disparities and much more, just showing how uh, children have been targeted. So you can consider tonight as a follow-up to last week's episode where we're going to do a review of recent U.S. Supreme Court rulings. On extreme sentences for juveniles The death penalty Life without the possibility of parole And other 8th Amendment violations in sentencing juveniles And of course we'll have music Insightful conversation Uplifting educational and inspirational discussions And as always We'll bring the voices of the abolitionist Ancestors back to life For a new generation without bridging the gap Segment Have something really special put together for tonight So before we jump into tonight's uh, topic, Curtis, what do you think of the opening track?
6: I try to um, speak to my my friends and my associates all the time about the history of Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton as it um, pertains to marginalizing the African-American community. So just having the evidence of the actual um, speeches that they've done in front of people in segments or little snippets it's a great idea. Thank you for doing that. But if we can ever read the legislation that they created to make um, the United States the most carceral, uh, the highest carceral system on the planet, it would blow uh-huh. your mind. And so we're we're doing it one step at a time, though.
5: For sure. And I want to point out a couple of anniversaries while we're at it and sad anniversaries. So on September 15th, 1963, at 10.22 a.m., a massive explosion sent glass, cement, and debris flying. An FBI investigation later discovered that four Ku Klux Klan members had planted dynamite under a cement staircase outside of the 16th Street uh, Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Four little girls were killed in the church that Sunday morning. 11-year-old Denise McNair, 14-year-old Cynthia Wesley, Carol Robinson, and Addie Mae Collins. Nearly two dozen others were injured. Four little girls, I must have did a double click on that one. Also that same day in Birmingham, Alabama, the two young men or the two young boys who were always forgotten. Johnny Robinson was 16 years old and Virgil Ware was 13 years old. Uh, Young Johnny was killed by a police officer as he was running away from servants, and Virgil was riding on his brother's bicycle when he was shot by a 16-year-old, Larry Joe Sims, a white 16-year-old who supported the segregationist uh, movement. In the case of the officer who killed Johnny Robinson, two grand juries refused to indict Parker, claiming that there were no reliable witness accounts. As to the killers of Virgil Ware, the killer and his accomplice were both convicted of second-degree manslaughter, received seven months in jail, along with two years probation. So we definitely want to remember the names of Denise McNair, Cynthia Wesley, Carol Robinson, Addie Mae Collins, Johnny Robinson, and Virgil Ware. Again, when we're talking about targeting children, these were children who were murdered because of the color of their skin and for nothing else. So we have an interesting topic tonight, Curtis. Uh, We're going to be talking about these four to five cases that change the landscape of how juveniles are dealt with in the courts. We're talking about doing away with uh, mandatory death penalties, Mandatory life without parole, uh, getting rid of life without parole for non-capital cases, meaning there wasn't a homicide, and also making it retroactive for those who were already serving sentences, because as we're hearing some of the clips that we play, some of this stuff goes back decades, like four and five decades of all of these things, so if you have nothing else, Curtis, we can jump into our first track. We'll hear from Mumia Abu-Jamal, who's going to actually bring in the title track for the evening.
6: Well, that's Curtis. what's up. Um, the line of cases, we'll deal with that. The Graham, the Ropers, the Montgomery, the Miller, the um, the Jones, and bring everybody in the, our legal community up to speed on what's really going on on the ground even here in Louisiana where we have just um, had a ruling to stay removing the the young um, guys, the the kids that we have in Angola prison that are juveniles. So let's get to the first track. Um, Hope you guys enjoy this. Peace.
5: What you all are getting ready to hear is Mumia Abu-Jamal. For those who aren't familiar with him, he was a He basically does exactly what we're doing right now. He, was, he had a radio show, and he spoke the truth during the 70s, and he was accused of murdering a police officer. Received First he received the death penalty, and it got commuted to life without parole. He still remains active and vocal. We play a lot of his tracks. So this one was entitled The Children of Perdition. And this was giving on February 28, 2016 And it's going to be accompanied by the music from the soundtrack Road to Perdition And the two songs, Road to Perdition and Perdition You're listening to Abolition Today, AbolitionToday.org It's Yusuf Hassan and with our guest host, Curtis Davis And we'll be right back after this track Abolition,
0: Abolition, Abolition,
5: Abolition.
3: The Children of Perdition the recent decision of the U.S. Supreme Court in Montgomery versus Louisiana, which made its previous Miller v. Alabama ruling regarding life terms for juveniles retroactive, shined a harsh light on the systems which utilize such practices, for it comes from the most conservative and frankly repressive Supreme Courts in decades. Nowhere is this more evident than in Pennsylvania, the state with the most juvenile lifers not in the U.S. only, but in the world. How did this state of affairs come to be? Are kids in Pennsylvania somehow more sinister, more vile, more evil than in other states? Are they more fiendish than any other youth population on the planet Earth? It simply cannot be so. Such a suggestion flies in the face of logic. Why then have juveniles suffered so grievously in Pennsylvania for so many long years and decades. Initially, it should be noted that, unlike many other states in Pennsylvania, there exists no minimum age that restricts a juvenile from the cold winds of the criminal statutes. Thus, they are exposed to the same furies as sustained by adults, as evidenced by the time served by men in the Pennsylvania penal system who were once juveniles, who were entering their fifth decade that is over 50 years and counting in prisons. The writer has personal knowledge of a man who was housed with him in the infirmary, who has been continuously confined for over 50 years, is elderly and incontinent. His name is Robert Nash. I hope he is not offended that I'm outing him here. He is a sharp, witty, engaging fellow, but his body is spent. But there may have been a time when such a man, captured in the bloom of his youth, was an outlier, surely, right? Well, not quite. In the 1990s, there came a rush of youth into the state systems around the country, in part occasioned by the bipartisan maneuvers of the Bill Clinton presidency. I will not here restate that case for legal scholar Michelle Alexander. In her recent blockbuster, The New Jim Crow, has done so admirably with class and grace. What we have not re-examined, however, has been the work of scholars who work to buttress the burgeoning specter of mass incarceration. Here I write of people like Dr. John DiLulio, who was among the first to launch the super-predator myth that flashed across TV screens nationwide. The philosophical equivalent of the sky is falling pumped into the national neural net, erupting into a mad political chorus that congealed and solidified into public policy. A policy of mass repression that targeted kids for decades, consigning them to rural holes of disorientation, disease, destruction, and death for decades. It is spectacular November 27, 1995 article in the Weekly Standard, the very title told the tale the coming of the super predators in this work deludio cites prosecutors convicts cops and others to support his essential premise that the children of today that is the 90s are far more fiendish more brutal more murderous more inhuman than any other generation that life has ever generated in essence he argued they are a breed apart Other conservative scholars rushed to co-sign his observations, as did ominously neoliberal politicians eager to make their mark. This nexus created a firestorm, a bipartisan monsoon of political opinion that swept a generation of youth into the jaws of hell. They deserved nothing, for a la diluvio, they were super predators scholars like delulio used instinct intuition impression worldview and bias to craft something that didn't exist in nature kids who were monstrous mutations of those who had gone before and politicians like then d.a lynn abraham and her predecessor edward g rendell used such scholastic cover to craft a malicious war against children for they were children yes but not their children and certain not children like them. They were children of a lesser god, beings of another order of mankind, homo destructus, perhaps, those who needed to be locked up forever. Hillary Clinton joined this malevolent company, and as Alexander has documented recently, she too damned these super predators, her words, to life in cages. For, again, in her words, they're not just gangs of kids anymore. None of Delulio's predictions came to pass. Indeed, the polar opposite was true. Not only had we not seen the rise of the so-called super-predators, but crime rates fell to their lowest rates in half a century. In some, Delulio was as wrong as two left feet. There arose a saying in the philosophical community, I don't know, you don't know, and neither does Delulio. Predictions, it appears, are better left to soothsayers. Meanwhile, hundreds and then thousands of children were consigned to adult hellholes. Some went mad. Some were monstrously assaulted. Some were savaged by older men. And one mustn't forget, given the scandals that arose out of Florida's since discontinued boot camps... These older men were often state officials, but all were traumatized by a theory sold by a scholar who got the analysis wrong, the predictions wrong, the numbers wrong, and his science wrong. But the politics were right, far right, and children paid an obscene price. From Imprisoned Nation, this is Mumia Abu-Jamal.
0: Abolition today. Abolition, Today. Abolition Today. Abolition,
5: You just heard Mumia Abu Jamal speaking on the children of Perdition. And that was accompanied by Road to Perdition and Perdition. Welcome back to Abolition Today, AbolitionToday.org dot org and the way the brother just broke everything down there, Curtis, uh, I'm definitely open to hearing mean, your feedback on everything. Mumia is deep, man. Um, like I can listen to him all day.
6: Of course. Momia has um, endured long suffering. When you're inside of the cage, it's like when Muhammad went to the mountain or when Jesus went in, was in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's mm-hmm. time for reflection, and you're looking out over the world. And um, in my 26-year experience at Angola Prison, um, being in the darkness, although extremely painful as it was, was an opportunity for my mind to develop and grow. And Mumia has shown the entire world. I'm talking about his intellectual prowess. And think about what um, the black community in particular has done to support the people that have destroyed our children and that's been right. crazy it's like oh you better support hillary you better support biden and i'm not trying to be um saying who cool, somebody should vote for but politics is the art of forwarding your own agenda and our people have been ravished by this criminal justice system and particularly as it is root cause is slavery this has always been about trying to make sure that a balance has been set since the civil war to, to um, put the Negro in his place, the traditional place that he's supposed to be at. And I know you, you're you going to talk about the history and the black codes and everything that came about continuing this type of line of legislation that will, first of all, attack our black boys, because that is the, the, um, what they perceive as the major threat to continue white supremacy and um, global dominance.
5: You know, something that I forgot to mention from the opening track, she said something really powerful in there when she said 75% of people currently serving or those sentenced to life without parole as juveniles, 75% occurred in the 1990s to present. And you know, that's,
6: that's major. Bill Clinton took office in 1992, and it stayed in there right. eight years. You know, he right. doubled the prison population in just eight years where it had taken America to get that um, um, 800 and some odd thousand within 200 years. In eight years, it's not a person's family that I don't – I mean, somebody has been affected right around all of us. So this is a big deal situation that we need to um, make clear to everybody.
5: Right. And so when we look at the history – So we have 2005 Roper versus Simmons. That was the one where sentencing a defendant to death for a crime committed when they were under 18 is unconstitutional under the Eighth Amendment, basically saying it's cruel and unusual punishment to sentence a juvenile to death and as then, we started talking about the
6: development of their their brains and so forth exactly Go we're going
5: to hear we're going to hear a really good breakdown of that in the later track you know we just yeah, want to yeah. mention the the four it really should be five cases four cases are going to be talked about because of the time of when these cases were were uh decided and when the audio was created Uh, There's Graham versus Florida. That's 2010. This is where they also called it an Eighth Amendment violation for a juvenile being sentenced to life without parole for non-capital cases. They were literally out there sentencing children to life without the possibility of parole, and it wasn't even a homicide. And many of these cases, I'm not going to say many, I didn't really get all of the stats on that. But there were large numbers of cases where, because of the three strikes or other things, where it was simple things. There's, there's a, one guy where he, he stole a jacket for about 150 bucks. And he ended up getting a life sentence, life without the possibility of parole. So Graham versus Florida say, "Yeah, you can't do that. You can't do that." One of the
6: biggest things is is flight from an officer. If you run away, you understand what I'm saying? They they consider ah. that a violent crime here, so it can be um, your third strike.
5: Yeah. Just they used away. to call it. They used to call it <laughs> <laughs> the, the 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 runaway slave syndrome. <laughs> you know, of course, it's quite. It's it's only a natural reaction to run. Like nobody's gonna say, "Oh yeah, put me in cuffs." It's a natural inclination to run, and so that becomes a violent crime just for running away. <laughs> wow. So Miller versus Alabama, and we're gonna hear that one a lot tonight because Miller versus Alabama. Really uh, Upset the apple cart within the system That was decided in 2012 And that's where no juvenile May face a mandatory Sentence of life imprisonment Without the possibility of parole No matter how serious The crime So that even extended it a little Further And then Montgomery versus Louisiana on your turf In 2016 They made it Retroactive To include uh, All of those who had been previously sentenced And then we get into Jones versus Mississippi in 2021 Where There was this determination where Before they could sentence, Sentence them to life without parole They were to have a hearing And there were many courts that weren't giving them the hearings, and so the court said that the discretionary system, sentencing system, is both constitutionally necessary and constitutionally sufficient. So we'll talk about that later on as the discussion goes forward. One thing that I wanted to point out from when uh, Mumia was speaking, Mumia mentioned that Pennsylvania, remember, that speech that he gave was at 2016 – As of now, Michigan now has the highest or has the most children serving life without parole. Also, 28 U.S. states have banned sentencing children to life without parole, but Michigan has it. They say racial disparities for this population in Michigan are starker than they are nationally. It says while black children make up 16% of Michigan's child population, 70% of the children sentenced to life without parole. A black in Michigan, and that's above the national average. The national average is about 60%, which is still extremely high for the number of... That's above the South
6: African average, not just right. the national average. That can't right. happen by happenstance. That has to be a design. You so know, let's and get then, it, huh,
5: Yeah, then there's a lot of delay in... The resentencing, because people have been resentenced, and I know you have a friend that's going to be calling in. He was resentenced based on Miller. But in Michigan, you have 40 people who were sentenced to mandatory life without parole. They've been waiting over seven years to get their hearing. And they say 80% of those waiting are people of color. Then you have 44 Who still have their cases pending So you can add that to the 40 So now that's 84 people still waiting for relief And they say uh, Michigan had a case called People vs. Parks Which follows the Miller and Montgomery rulings They still have 273 people Waiting for relief from that And again, 80% of them are black Curtis
6: Don't you know I know. Man. So um, we could probably get into our next track um, before we go a little too deep and let let the scholars speak. What do you think?
5: We can because this is where the next person that we're going to hear speak, she's going to break down the four cases. So the next person you all are going to hear from is Marsha Levitt. She's the Deputy Director and Chief Counsel of the Juvenile Law Center, and this is part of a webinar that was given based on the Miller decision, or in light of the Miller decision, and she will break down these five cases that we're talking about. So we want to jump into that. Marsha Levick, Deputy Director and Chief Counsel Juvenile Law Center. This is part one of it. It's an hour long for the the webinar, but I took about 10 minutes of it. So here's the first segment of it. You're listening to Abolition Today, abolitiontoday.org, with Yusuf Hassan and guest co-host Curtis Davis. We'll be right back.
0: Abolition. Abolition.
5: Abolition. Abolition. We have
7: now had four cases out of the United States Supreme Court since 2005 in which the court has addressed extreme and harsh sentencing of children prosecuted and convicted in the adult criminal justice system. All of these cases have relied upon a foundation of science, both behavioral science, psychological research, as well as uh, increasingly an an awareness and consideration of neuroscience and the more nascent brain imaging and scans that I think many of us are very familiar with, uh, that are also teaching us important uh, scientific facts about the adolescent brain Uh, and, in fact, its continuing development into the early 20s. In 2005, the Supreme Court decided Roper v. Simmons. This was the first of the court's new era of sentencing cases in which the court struck the death penalty for all juveniles who were convicted of homicides which they committed under the age of 18. In Roper, the court looked specifically at behavioral and developmental research that had been presented to the court and identified three specific factors that it relied upon in finding that children are different from adult offenders and most specifically different with respect to their culpability or blameworthiness for their criminal conduct. Those three characteristics were, number one, an immaturity of judgment and an impetuosity. Number two, a particular susceptibility to outside influences and negative peer pressures. And number three, of course, a a unique capacity for change, rehabilitation, and reformation. The court spoke extensively in the Roper decision about the extent to which adolescence is a period of transition. It is a period during which the natural developmental uh, phase that we go through as humans, uh, there's a particular stretch of that, of course, from infancy through toddlerhood through uh, the the middle school years and adolescence itself continues to be a period of change and growth, ultimately leading, of course, to maturity and adulthood. The court, in, in identifying those three factors, as I mentioned, He relied upon these in his conclusion that kids are different from adults in constitutionally relevant ways that required the court to reach a different decision with respect to imposing the death penalty on children. And, of course, all of these sentencing decisions are grounded upon the Eighth Amendment's ban on cruel and unusual punishment. Five years later, the court was asked to address the constitutionality of life without parole sentences in non-homicide cases, so cases where... Uh, While there may and certainly could have been severe injury or uh, some injury, certainly these were cases where again, these were non-homicide cases, Uh, no one was killed. And what the Supreme Court said in Graham was again looking at the behavioral science that it relied upon in Roper, and in Graham, beginning to look much more seriously at some of the new neuroscientific findings The court said that, again, because of the reduced blameworthiness and uh, culpability of juvenile offenders as compared to comparable adult offenders convicted of the same crimes, that it would be unconstitutional and cruel and unusual punishment to impose a sentence of life without parole uh, on juveniles convicted of non-homicide offenders. The court drew a distinction, in fact, in Graham, between juveniles who did not intend to kill Uh, did not, in fact, kill and did not foresee uh, that a a killing or murder could be a consequence of criminal conduct that they had participated in. The court was also particularly concerned in Graham with ensuring that juvenile offenders who are sent to prison for criminal conduct, uh, that there be hope, that there be the opportunity for them to envision a time in the future when they could be released back into their communities and that they have the opportunity to demonstrate their own growth and maturity to justify their ultimate release back into their communities.
0: Abolition. Abolition. Abolition.
7: Abolition. Abolition. Abolition.
5: Abolition. You just heard Marsha Levick, Deputy Director and Chief Counsel of the Juvenile Law Center, uh, with the first part, breaking down Recent U.S. Supreme Court decisions, in fact, she just spoke about Roper v. Simmons and Graham versus Florida, and it's, it's it's really ironic that it took the U.S. Supreme Court to determine kids are different from adults, you know, and they broke down certain factors based on they had to do all of this scientific research, uh, behavioral science, and Uh, Neuroscience and brain scanning And developmental research To determine that kids lack Maturity or that kids Have impulsive behavior Or kids have an inability to Access risks and consequences Or kids actually have A heightened capacity for change (laughs) Curtis Right
6: at least the Potential is there I would be Remiss though if we didn't um, Give some shout outs though to Uh, Flick, Friends and Family of Louisiana's Incarcerated Children, um, of all of the juvenile organizations and the um, adult criminal justice organizations that um, help in Montgomery versus Louisiana have been on this road for years now, decades and decades, before people um, thought that this was um, sexy or cute to get involved in this type of work. You have had some people that have been on the ground, uh, Gina Womack, um, the people from both the voice of the experience, who have gone with um, Promise of Justice Institute, um, going up to the Supreme Court and rallying outside in Washington, D.C. to make sure that this issue becomes something that people are cognizant of. So that being said, yeah, when I was in Angola, um, Yusuf, the guys that were juveniles um, were Really, really, being uh, becoming more and more mature as they develop their cases, as they spend time in the law libraries, as they started doing the work of grown-ass people. Because lawyers go to school for eight years, uses, and then these kids barely have even came out of junior high school, and having to litigate this level of um, of um, legal jurisprudence. So, yeah, I'm glad that we get the chance to kind of break it down to those of us who have been out here going to work every day at the right aid at the Popeye's chicken place or whatever. And this is that are oblivious to the fact that we have so um, much of a draconian criminal justice system here in the United States of America. And we are the only people that can change it. You, They say voice of the people, right? Voice of the people. That's right. Yeah,
5: that's right. So, let me uh let's let's backtrack to something we heard in an earlier clip as well where it talked about some of the conditions that these juveniles had to go through you know because we're talking about uh waiver to adult courts them having to serve their time with adults and how many of them were. Subjected to Predatory officers Predatory uh, Others who were in there with them You know and I know in your experience You most likely came across Juvenile lifers Maybe some very young Uh, Can you speak To Sort of like Just any experience that you have With uh, dealing with juvenile Lifers especially those that were really young when they came into the system.
6: Definitely. Um, Angola in the 1990s was considered the bloodiest prison in the nation. Um, It is an island that has water on three sides. It's um, a place where you send people to die. There's never any intention when a person goes to the island of Angola that that person will return back to um, this society. So this is like um, Devil's Island from uh, ancient France. So when you get here, people are primitive. There is no um, educational system at that time. There's no Mm -hmm. developmental self-improvement system. It's just the the walls are painted red on purpose, and you know the color conditioning works a certain kind of way, and it becomes Mm -hmm. a hell on earth, a real hell on earth. So now imagine a child or even a grown man coming into this situation, and it's like, oh, my God. These, you, you're, you're back in history 100 years. You're made to be a slave again. Um, they have guards that are selling the kids to grown um, men. Saying, when you first come through, they have a system. Where you got $200. Let me get that young one right there. You know what I'm saying? Because it was savagery, a, a really, really terrible situation, and it was part of the punishment even though they said that we won't be subjected to cruel and unusual punishment. That was a design by the people who designed the system of Louisiana jurisprudence to make sure that that state in this place would be hell on earth, hence we have a ecclesiastic jurisprudence here in Louisiana while the rest of the country has counties in common law. That's not what, what actually governs this actual part of the state. So yes, I, invite, I' invited a young man tonight. His name is Terrence Wynn. Mm-hmm. He went to prison when he was 16 years old, and stayed for 30 years, straight. I watched him develop and grow We used to call him big youngster because he' like six foot two inches tall and broad shoulders and all this that and other, but he still was a kid. Didn't come to understand right. children are children. But he didn't have it as bad as the other little children that couldn't defend themselves and had to live through this barbaric existence. So I wanted to get him on here a little later, whenever you think that that's a good time, have him call in and explain what it meant to actually be a juvenile lifer behind the, um, the enemy lines and this horrific system.
5: Well, thank you for that. We're going to get into part two of uh, Marsha Levick's uh, presentation. And on the other side of that, we're going to open up the phone lines. You can call in, 515-605-9814. Remember to press one so you can be into the phone queue. Uh, What did you say the brother's name? His name was Wynn, right? His name is Terrence
6: Wynn, yes, sir. Terrence
5: Wynn. If you're on the line, definitely press one so we can get you into the phone queue. Uh, but right now we're going to get into part two, Marsha Levitt, Deputy Director of, and Chief Counsel, the Juvenile Law Center, speaking on Miller versus Alabama and the other cases that came before it. You're listening to Abolition Today, abolitiontoday.org. Max Parthas is having the day off. So you have myself, you have guest host Curtis Davis, and we'll be right back. Abolition Abolition. Abolition.
7: Two years later, in Miller versus Alabama, the court was asked to now address mandatory life without parole sentences for juveniles who were convicted of homicide offenses. In Miller, the court, uh, again, relied upon the specific three attributes of juvenile offenders that I've, that I've identified. Again, that would be immaturity and impetuosity, susceptibility to negative peer influences, and this unique capacity for change and rehabilitation and here again found that a mandatory life without parole sentence also violated the Eighth Amendment's ban on cruel and unusual punishment even in a homicide case and the court in Miller was concerned with a couple of very specific things the court was concerned with not only this uh, consideration about the, the potential for hope for a child or a youth sent to prison as an adult but also very concerned that we not judge all children the same and that in order to impose any kind of extreme sentence such as even a discretionary life without parole sentence on a juvenile offender that these individuals had to have each of their cases considered on their own merits much like in the death penalty case youth had to have the opportunity to put forward mitigating evidence Uh, that would demonstrate uh, that, again, they they themselves were not the worst of the worst. One of the things that the Supreme Court has consistently uh, identified in all of these cases is this view that sentences like first the death penalty, then life without parole, in non-homicide cases, even mandatory life without parole, that all of these sentences in each of the circumstances presented, could only be imposed on what we, as a society, would consider to be the worst of the worst offenders. And the court found these mitigating factors that you see on the screen now to be factors that, again, justified a view that kids are different, as I said, in constitutionally relevant ways that alter our thinking about how we sentence children. When the court, uh, as as Sarah explained, when the court decided the Miller decision, um, while I think – Many across the country assumed uh, that Miller would, in fact, uh, be retroactive. It turned out that there was a significant amount of disagreement among state courts about whether or not it was retroactive. And this meant that some of the aspects of the Miller decision were, in a sense, essentially left in a kind of limbo about how states should confront sensing of juveniles uh, who had been serving life without parole sentences, mandatory life without parole sentences, in many instances for decades. So what you see on your screen now are the Miller factors, and these are factors that were identified by Justice Kagan in her majority opinion, in which she said that courts at a minimum in going forward and in choosing whether or not to impose a a discretionary life without parole sentence on a juvenile would have to consider, of course, the youth's age, we have to look at the youth, family, and home environment. The court talked about the degree to which um, kids can't control the home environments in which they grow up in. These can often be abusive uh, or disruptive or dysfunctional home environments, and that 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 can have an effect on a child or youth's ability uh, to make mature judgments and to make informed judgments about the kind of conduct uh, and experiences that they end up engaging in. Of course, the court... Was concerned about the circumstances of the offense. And here the court is also looking at the degree of involvement. Was the child directly involved, for example, in the killing that occurred? Was the child a bystander? Was the child a uh, driving the car, driving the getaway car? Uh, did the child leave the scene of the, the crime before the murder was actually committed, uh, but had participated in some underlying criminal conduct? Uh, The court felt that all of that should be looked at uh, under this category of circumstances of offense. possibility of rehabilitation, of course, is critical to the court's thinking about the circumstances under which such a sentence could be imposed. And the court was also concerned with the realization that many youth who are involved in the criminal justice system really lack the adult capacity or competency Uh, to both assist their counsel, but also to navigate the criminal justice system, to navigate a police interrogation, to protect their own rights during a police interrogation, to understand uh, the kinds of issues that come up in considering whether or not to negotiate a plea agreement. So these were the, the core factors that the court identified in Miller. And in identifying these factors, what the court said in Miller is that we as a society uh, should only be imposing even a discretionary life without parole sentence in only the rarest and most uncommon of circumstances. So in Miller, the court really laid the groundwork uh, for, for thinking about a, a, essentially a fairly small sliver of the juvenile offender population uh, who might get such a sentence in the future, or of course ultimately now who would be currently serving such a sentence and whether or not that sentence could be reimposed. Abolition, abolition,
0: abolition, abolition.
7: abolition. abolition. abolition.
5: abolition. You just heard Marsha Levick, Deputy Director and Chief Counsel of the Juvenile Law Center, speaking on the Miller Factors. Welcome back to Abolition Today, abolitiontoday.org with Yusuf Hassan and guest co-host Curtis Davis. She really broke it down right there, and I think I could summarize it in just a couple of words. She, in essence, told Joe Biden to shut the hell up when he started talking about it doesn't matter about their family. It doesn't matter about this, and it doesn't matter about that. all that stuff that we heard him saying in the opening track. where well, the U.S. Supreme Court in Miller just basically said, no, you got it wrong. These are kids. We have to treat them like kids. And we have to analyze what's going on in the mind and the psyche of a child. Curtis?
6: Yes, sir. And it just seems like um, it's amazing that our society hadn't reached that level of civility until um, 2016. That's ridiculous, as a matter of fact. And not to mention that they're going back on those promises from the Supreme Court. We'll get an opportunity to talk about that. But um, you said you would open a line up for some callers.
5: I will. And Just I give one to un- second. We're going to enumerate okay. the Miller factors right before we jump into that. Uh, so, yep, again, sir. the courts must now consider age, family and home environment, circumstances of the offense, possibility of rehabilitation, capacity, competency, uh, competency, T to assist counsel and navigate the criminal justice system that's very important because adults get railroaded so you can imagine a child how easily they can be railroaded through the system so all of these factors have to be taken into account uh yes so go ahead you can uh bring in uh terrence win i know you have him on your end brother terrence are you there one second, Curtis probably has to do the Slip over the lines While we're waiting to, for him to bring him in I just want to mention the minimum age A juvenile may be waived to adult court Because this is something that wasn't uh, Covered in any of the tracks So when we talk about waiver to adult court The Since the 1920s Only only 10 states allowed Juveniles to uh, be waived To adult court, so I should say back in the 20s Today, all states allow certain juvenile offenders to be waived to adult court. And one other point that I want to make about that, once waived to adult court, juveniles are usually subject to the same penalties as adults, including in some states, life sentence, life without the possibility of parole, and the death penalty. And one last point, minimum age of juvenile may, may be waived by adult Uh, Wave 2 adult court by state Uh, Age 15 is New Mexico There is a whole host of states at age 14 Alabama, Arkansas, California, Connecticut, Iowa, Kentucky, Louisiana Massachusetts, Michigan, Minnesota, New Jersey North Dakota, Ohio, Texas, Utah, and Virginia Age 13, Illinois, Mississippi, New Hampshire New York, North Carolina, Wyoming Age twelve, Colorado, Mississippi I'm sorry, Missouri and Montana, age ten, Kansas and Vermont, and no minimum age specified are all the states that I haven't mentioned, Alaska, Arizona, Delaware, too many to mention, but you will be able to find all of this information that you hear on the program on our abolition today uh Facebook page. So Curtis, you ready?
6: The land of the free. Home of the brave, where we send our children uh, to prison forever. That's uh, that's amazing. Did you um, and did you understand how how mean spirited a system has to be to to send a ten year old to an adult prison?
5: Yeah, that, that takes 13-year-old. that takes some stuff. Yeah, that takes some stuff. And then we're talking about these states had to be forced to stop sending them to prison. For life without parole or stop sending them to the mandatory death penalty These are little children Wow So I see, do you have a caller with you?
6: Um, I did, I asked him to call on somebody else's phone His phone was giving them trouble getting through What do you have right now?
5: Okay, so I have 2420 You're on with Curtis Davis and Yusuf Hassan Welcome to Abolition Today State your name where you calling from and any question or comment?
8: Uh, my name is Terrence Wynn and I'm calling from Streetport.
5: All right. Welcome to the show. Uh, Curtis, uh, you, you mentioned that you and uh, Terrence did some time together.
6: Definitely. Um, I stayed in Angola prison for 26 years for a second degree murder charge that I was wrong, wrongfully convicted of. Terrence, um 30 years in Angola prison from the age of 16 to 46 where um, after the Miller court came, we had an opportunity to get a parole hearing and lobby for his release. And he's been out here doing work. You know, he's executive director of an organization by the name of pipes. So I'll let you go, I'll let him tell you what it means. He's working in the streets and across the state on different levels of leg- legislation to make the prison a more humane place to be, first of all, if you're going to have to be there, and then he works to get people out of the prison system. So I'm glad to have him on here tonight. And um, let us know, really, Terrence, what did it mean to you to be a 16-year-old going into an adult system? Because I'm sure our listeners would be um, glad to be privy of that from a person who actually went through it. So speak on it.
8: Um, First of all, it's, it's a scary situation. It's a it's a real real scary situation because you're coming out of. I was in school at the time that that I was going that I went to prison, so you know you don't know what you don't know what to expect. Only thing you know you've heard all these horror stories, and here it is you're going into a, a facility with nothing but others. people that society considers hardened criminals, and so you know you think about all of these these stories and you go in and you gotta just be prepared to, to either die or defend yourself. And, and so you gotta automatically change your mindset from how it is in society where you could just live and just be a kid. So I gotta be a grown up and I gotta just I gotta get a knife
6: and I gotta fight. And I can't let you So you're saying point. that they turned you into like they wanted you to become not a, a more civil person or a corrected person, but it was savage. Like they turned you into a beast or an animal or something. <laughs> yes.
8: They told me, you know, they told me the American dream no longer applies to you. The America nightmare applies to you. So now you gotta become a part of this nightmare. Or
9: mm.
8: you know, you gonna be you're gonna be prey. So you're gonna be predator or prey. And I ain't wanna be either so I have to just fight to prove who I was, my identity in prison, before, that I, before I could stand on my own, too, and then continue to try to educate myself, which prison, at that time, offered no no hope for a young person going home. So for the first 20, for the first 26, 24 years of my life, no, 30, I mean, for the first 24 years of my life, I had no hope. The courts continued to turn me down. And so I just it was like I wanna hold on to this optimism but it was a pessimistic situation. So I just just prayed. I prayed five times a day. Man, please let this just turn over for me. And and it finally did when Miller came up. But then we had Yusuf, to wait.
6: I'm sorry to interrupt you, Terrence, but I I know that <laughs> Yusuf has a question for you. He's always doing that deep, insightful um, dive in the situation. So I want him to um, see what he can pull out you, right? What you got for him, Yusuf?
5: You know, I, I was really, you know, deep into what he was saying. Uh, so I'd like to go over the Miller factors with you. Did you hear me mention the Miller factors area earlier?
8: Yes, yeah. yeah,
5: sir. And, of course, uh Everything is totally up to you, what you want to share, what you don't want to share, but when they start talking about age, so you were sixteen at the time, and yes, uh the family and home environment, you know circumstances of the offense, so when you well I should say let me let me change my question, so you were sentenced to life without the possibility of parole, and then Miller versus Alabama happened. How did you first hear about it? And what started the process? Did it automatically happen? Did you have to go through something to actually get back in court? So take us through those those stages.
8: Um, all right. While while in Angola, we kind of like after the Roper situation, uh-huh. the ju- the juvenile, which people gotta understand, where Roper Roper actually opened the doors for Miller. ROPA was a case about not letting juveniles die with their vote. And so right. when ROPA became, took effect in, prison, in Angola, we went to identifying all those who had put as a kid. Because after ROPA, we had Graham. And Graham right. said that you can't give a kid a life sentence that didn't commit a murder. <clears throat> and so from Graham, Miller came into effect but now we didn't establish ourselves to be these 200 guys that was kids, actual kids at the time. So now, now we got the hope and now we're starting to meet with one another. So when the Miller decision came about, initially we was all going to meet up in the education building, which is uh, the place that you visit in Angola, in the main prison. Mm-hmm. But the count happened. So, what each and every one of us did that was in the main prison, we asked the guys in, man, we need to put this TV on CNN until we hear this decision. So we put the TV on CNN, and we didn't move until the decision was read. So after the decision, you can just hear celebration all over. So when the count cleared, the doors opened, and all of us ran out and hugged one another. And every some of us was crying. And then we all went up to the education building and we sat down because the guys up there recorded it. And we sat down and looked at it again and again and again. And the hope was there. And we knew that we was going to have a chance to walk out.
5: Right. And so at that and time, it wasn't retroactive yet, right? No. And no. Then... and,
8: and that, hadn't come, that hadn't come into the conversation yet. And then it came into the conversation and we was like, Oh man, oh man, and then it finally became retroactive in twenty sixteen.
5: Right, and so when that That's Montgomery been, versus Louis, Louisiana dropped, now I can only yeah. imagine, you know, what went through uh you know, the halls there at that point.
8: <gasps> it was like, Man, we got it, but then, you know, the decision it was really kind of shady because Montgomery was the guy that had a, a murder on the, on the police. And so we know that Louisiana ain't going to let him go. So they made it a little, a little harder for us, plus how the ruling was read, So they, we know that they ain't going to give us a responsive verdict. So we're like, man, what are these people going to do? man? We don't want them to legislate it because we know it's going to be a parole situation. But that's what they ended up doing, making it a parole situation, which at that point, Louisiana was not the parole situation was just like, man, you got flat time because it, it had no release mechanism in it because it, it wasn't utilized repeatedly. And then, you know, uh, the, the the governor that we have now, he was in and he was all about uh, prison reform. And that hope just the hope was there because he implemented a board that was really, really fair. So the legislators passed this twenty five years, you know, you do twenty five years before you enter the role, you gotta go this, this long without a write up. You gotta have these here factors in place so that you can be awarded a chance of going home. So everybody went to getting themselves together. Like and we went to looking out for one another, saying, Look, but leave all that stuff long. we wanna go home. And so we just became
6: our brothers' keeper. Wow. <laughs> and um I, I was there to witness that. And on on top of that, parents I came home in 2016. I had the honor of working with the Justice Reinvestment Act with Vote and Southern Poverty Law Center to get the legislation um, on the books to make sure that you guys had the opportunity to come home. A lot of people were saying, "Wait, 25 years too long." I'm saying, "Well, right now it's forever, so let's let's get something on the books so that yeah. our brothers and sisters can have an opportunity to taste freedom again." And I'm glad you out here. Doing the positive work that you've been doing, man, and it just shows us that um, the potential is there that, that our children can grow into greatness, to be able to be responsible members of society and excel. A whole lot of people that have just been out here in the, in the world and in the way. What you got for me, Yusuf?
5: So, I want us to take a quick music break, and on the other side, we can continue the conversation. So. We want to jump into this track. It's called Five Things You Didn't Know About Black Children During Slavery. This is uh, by Walter B. Hoy II on behalf of the Atlantic Black Star. And it's going to be followed up by a track that you sent me, Curtis, uh, Keith Wallace, Death to All Slave Catchers. You're listening to Abolition Today, <laughs> abolitiontoday.org, with Yusuf Hassan and guest co-host Curtis Davis. And on the phone with us right now is Terrence Wynn, who was sentenced as a juvenile to life without the possibility of parole at the age of 16 And Miller versus Alabama and Montgomery versus Louisiana brought the brother home So we'll listen to this track, take this quick music break, and we'll be back on the other side Abolition, Abolition.
4: Here are five things you didn't know about black children during slavery Number one, black children were fed like pigs because there were often many babies to be fed, they were fed out of troughs. Children fed like pigs out of troughs and being supplied sparingly invariably fight and quarrel with one another over their meals. Their food often lacked nutritional value and led to malnutrition. Number two, even children's games were oppressive. In the common game hide and switch, one child would hide a switch which is a branch cut from a tree commonly used for whippings. And whoever found it first would then chase the others in an attempt to whip them. Number three, children were often forced to have sex. The more enslaved people an owner had, the wealthier he was. Therefore, children were often forced to have sex in order to procreate. They were also used as sex slaves. Childbearing started around the age of 13, and by 20, the women slaves would be expected to have four or five children. Number four, ages at which children were required to work vary. Almost half of the interviewees in the slave narrative collection recall being put to work before the age of seven. Boys and girls were required to take water to the fields, tend to the animals, and care for younger children, among other duties. Number five, high death rate. Children who were born in slavery were exposed to many traumas. This led to high infant child mortality rates at almost twice the rate of their white counterparts.
1: You can never whip these boys if you don't keep
6: you and them separate. I found that out in Birmingham. You've got to keep the
2: white and the black separate.
10: I want to see the kids in the hood play together, play together, hold hands and even pray together. That man in the sky, I'm hoping he can make it better, make it better. When it's hot, I wish I could change the weather. I want to see the kids in the hood play together, play together, move in and even stay together. They gave me the Bible, thought it make me behave better, but I'm rebelling, death's all, slave catchers, stole sword off, will make his whole head fall off, paramedics rushing the Dead bodies get hauled off, you yeah. The birth of a nation, young Nat Turner, guns up and they blast. And I'd rather die before I live as a slave. African women queens, but they was living as maids on that plantation. For the sin and the family, it's time for us to rebel because I can't dwell in this insanity. In my heart, how much pain could it be? Looking at my ancestors as they hang from a tree and watch that I sit back. Why they kill all our prophecies? pain in my hand for nothing, boy, I'm a poppin' They living foul and rotten on them fields of cotton Actin' like they forgot it But homie, they still plottin' to make America great again And when they say, make America great again That mean make slaves again I wanna see the kids in the hood play together, play together Hold hands and even pray together That man in the sky, I'm hopin' he can make it better, make it better When it's hot, I wish I could change the weather I want to see the kids in the hood play together, move in and even stay together. They gave me the Bible, thought it made me behave better, but I'm rebelling, death's all safe. They bombed our churches and they raped our women. Harriet Tubman ran, escaping away from prison, huh? job they did us wrong. To free a thousand more, had they known they been slaves. 1849. see escape to Philly. This knowledge Some teeth in the government probably wanna kill me, and they ask me who I'm voting for. Hillary or Donald Trump? What? Man, I'd rather vote for Donald Duck. Democrats and Republicans, same people. Council of Foreign Relations, they plain evil. Hundreds stops to cut they life off. I did it so in Cali, and them. Cut the mic off, provoking me to hate the law With every breath, I'm getting mad Pain in my heart, and I exposed with this pen and pad Duck in your cell like a turtle What was all lives matter when Emmett Till was murdered, huh? I want to see the kids in the hood play together, play together Hold hands and even pray together That man in the sky, I'm hoping he can make it better, make it better When it's hot, I wish I could change the weather I want to see the kids in the hood play together, play together, play together. Behave battle But I'm them to all slave capital When we reach 20, so... Young man Young ass heart Heard the venus Abolition Abolition
0: Abolition Abolition Abolition
5: Abolition Abolition You just heard Five <laughs> that's things that's... you didn't know About black children During slavery And that was Accompanied by Oh, I should say that was by Walter B. Hoy the second for the Atlantic Black Star, followed by Keith Wallace, uh, death to all slave catchers. So some interesting information there, uh, Curtis.
6: Yes, sir. All the way. And you know, uh you set the tempo, man, for the attitude of abolition. That this, this cannot be a continuous thing. It's not just about Putting um, people behind bars, it's about dehumanizing people, destroying the, uh, the, the psyche of people. This system is mean-spirited, and as you always say, it's working exactly the way it was designed to work instead of the misnomer um, that it's broken. So we have a lot of work to do and know that we're really about this. This is what we do.
5: Exactly. I'm not sure if it's you or Terrence, but one of you have some feedback coming through
8: oh, that's uh there's me
5: okay it's all good so uh terrence i want to turn to you for a second uh you have any feedback for what you just heard in that track
8: oh man i, I love i love brother keith Wallace. Uh, and uh you cannot you cannot run from those factors of uh <laughs> i ain't gonna just say depth to all slaves. <laughs> i mean i'm i don't want to be so blatant to say that but um uh,
5: Hey, it's a... <laughs> Yeah, I can understand we from slave... your standpoint I, yeah. I, I get why you can't say it You know, I get
8: it <laughs> because we know, we know Who the slave catchers are In this day and time Right so, um, it's a, uh, But it's a beautiful A beautiful song And it's, it's what people kind of like feel We at least need to say Death to that system of slave catchers
5: And that's where you Slavery know. abolition comes in so I'd like to turn the conversation to, uh, to the track itself when it talks about the five things you didn't know about slavery. And one thing that we do here on the program is always make – we connect the dots because many people think uh, the 13th Amendment abolished slavery and then there are no badges and incidents or remnants of slavery still happening, things that are still going on. So you spent 30 years in Angola You know Could you speak of Incidents where you had Where you were forced to work You were ever punished for refusing to work Things of that nature
8: Okay I I can speak of my punishment Because You know I refused to work most of the time I was like You know I was like Me and Curtis had the same ideology, but Curtis did it way more diplomatically than me. Curtis came up with a way to <laughs> to get the doctor to tell him not to go to work. I just went to the to the dungeon, and I just went to isolation, where you yeah. just be on lockdown for twenty four hours a day, and where you see guys who really fight the system in their barbaric ways, and they health suffered because they was Mason Making them down, and most of those guys died because of the long-term injuries that that makes causes causes to your lungs and stuff. So it's like every day they call you. Like when I, I went to prison doing cotton picking time, and I'm just fresh out of high school. Here I am. I turned 17 years old in the parents. and so and Curtis giving me books to make me become way more conscious-minded of all of these the slavery stuff, stuff that our schools wasn't giving us. So I'm in the Paris, and I'm reading books by George Jackson. I'm reading books by J. Rogers, stuff they never taught Mm. you in history class. All these books, I was introduced by Curtis. So now, man, I'm sucking this up. So now I'm becoming more revolutionary minded, because now it's not I'm not thinking like the average black kid now because I have opened my mind to a whole different world. So now I'm understanding how much these people hate us. And so now, you know, I been reading about slavery in school, about the cotton and all this stuff. So when I go to prison, I, I write the history books and talk about the cotton, but now George Jackson now is me a lot more. So it's like, oh, I'm not, I'm not doing that. They're like, oh, you're going to do it or you're going to the dungeon? Well, I'm going to dungeon. So I just was going to the dungeon like, nope, I'm not doing it. You ain't going to force me to do something that I ain't gonna, I don't want to do. And so I, I had like, I got rolled up a lot because I refused to do that. I refused to let you break me, and I refused to accept everything that you telling me to do. And
6: and I just didn't do I didn't do it.
5: Thank you for that insight. Thank you. Uh, Curtis? courtesy. Okay.
6: Oh, no, man, I mean, I bear witness to everything that he's saying. I mean, after all, I did come in prison um, post-military, post-college. So I had a um, relatively strong consciousness about um, the the plight of the African-American or black person in the United States of America. You know, I was raised on the streets of Compton, California. So once I was around, once I was stuck in the prisons, my whole idea was to label this thing slavery as it is, get my people to understand the condition that we live in so that we could fight to be free one day because it was a whole lot of people that didn't even care about being free. They felt like they deserved it, and nobody deserves to live like this. Useless.
5: Yeah, so uh, Terrence, I have another question for you because I'm really enjoying this conversation with you. Can you take us yes, into mind – of a 16-year-old being sentenced to life without parole. Like, what was your... Like, how did you feel when you heard the judge tell you that? Like, what was going on in your mind?
8: I I have to, I have to go back. Before that, what was going on in my mind when I was found guilty? Because I understood the consequences of I was found guilty in this trial. Mm-hmm. So when I was found guilty... <clears throat> when I was from guilty, the first thing that goes through went through my 16-year-old mind was, I ain't going to see my mama no more.
9: Man, I ain't going to
8: see my mama no more. I ain't going to see my family no more. And then I went back in, and I just was looking outside the window, and I was just looking at the car and stuff, and I said, Man, I ain't going to see this here no more. You know and, and it and it's a it's a realistic way of thinking, but it's a, it's a key of mind and it's like uh it's like man, I ain't gonna never touch a woman again, I ain't gonna see my kids, I ain't gonna be able to touch my kids or nothing. that's a real like man you just feel hopeless and then you know you're in prison, so you can't cry. I gotta hold these tears in. Mm -hmm. holding tears in and so the reality of that is my youth is stopped at that point so me coming Mm -hmm. back home I'm back being, I came back home as a 16 year old that was 46 and even Mm. to this day I haven't got out that mindset I'm 19 years old in society now, I do things like in a way, I do things I hope like an adult, but I really do them like a kid because I still marvel at I'm riding the car with Curtis. They be like,
10: man, I ain't never think we're
8: riding the car together because when I went to prison, I didn't own a car. He did because he owed them. I didn't own it. Even though I own cars now, I still, I'm fascinated by this. Me being in my own house, I'm fascinated by that because I I was in a cell. Like I say, I was arrested at 16. I was I was arrested during my development stage. So I'm back out here living those, living that time. So going through what I went through was, man, I ain't going to never have this again. I got to go in here and I got to just be a man. and I can't, And it's a different type of man because it's not the man that, a kid that never went to prison is me going to the prom. Me uh me going to college. Me getting my first call through my parents. Me learning how to be a responsible person through society. Through I'm not that. I'm in prison. Responsibilities are not that in prison. In prison I don't have to pay no bills. Everything is told to me. Everything is, is structured for me. So I got a different way of seeing life. I got a different code of life because it's not like the average kid. So we see a 49-year-old man out in there, and I tell women this, you can't really see us the way you see a person that's never been a prison because we got immaturity that he's going to be way more mature with because he's never went where we went to. And then my emotions had to be cut off. So you telling the kids to, man, don't cry, man. You can't love them now. You gotta stop loving. Them. You gotta let them go. When you walking out that door and shit, with your family, the people that loving you, spending their time to come see you, don't look back at them. Keep walking. Mm-hmm. Keep your head straight. And so now I got to become subhuman. So now I become a slave to my emotions because all of that's cut off. I got to cut off. I can't feel what everybody else has to feel because if I feel it, it's going to kill me. It's going to make me contemplate suicide because I can't I can't get it. I can't fully hold it. I can't fully love a woman like I want to love a woman. only thing I can do is spend a little time with her. And imagine how it is to just be with her. Imagine how it is to be her man, even though she's saying I'm her man, but I can't really feel it because I'm in prison. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking of this as a, as a as a man, me as a kid, and I'm going through this because people leaving me because I'm in prison. They're not growing with me like they like they was growing with me. Then they're not growing apart from me. They're getting other friends, and I'm holding on to those memories. And people like. It. Terrence, I got different memories now. And that's like, right. damn, you heard me saying it. But it's like, that's the truth. Like, my girlfriend. i have been with other men. That's it. I can't remember us doing this. I'd be like, damn, women supposed to remember this. You this. <laughs> been with it. You
9: know,
6: that's, hey, Terrence, hey, you got people calling in, asking um, about your schooling. Did you have any late year schooling opportunities while you were in angola um can you speak to that briefly before we um get into brother Mac parkins i know he okay. wants to ask you a question or two okay
8: yes I, I i got a chance to get my GED. i got a chance to go on and get a, a culinary degree which is a trade but you know you got to study for it i got a chance to get a uh uh the pollution degree where you be spraying stuff so I, I constantly went to school. And then, you so know, you, you bring me books. So I'm constantly educating myself on just the values of life. And and I'm, I'm educating myself on how to be a better black man, a, ble- a better human To all these other books that you might come and say, man, order this book. Have your people to order this book for you. And I get that. Or you might just say, man, read that. So I, You know, so that's what. My life became me just educating myself every single day because I didn't want to be like the man when you go and go and you see men slumped over. Men that refuse to look white people in the eyes, but they'll kill you. I never wanted to be like them. So I educated myself. I constantly educated myself. I got the the formal paperwork, and I got the paperwork that don't nobody know about. that's a black man just trying to build
6: himself. Wow.
5: That's
6: what's up. I have
5: one more question. Yeah, yes, just one more question. I mean, I have a million more questions, but uh, can you speak to the emotional and financial toll it took on your family during that time?
8: Okay, I'm gonna start it with the impact of it. my mama died telling her sister, "Don't let my baby die in prison." Hmm. My mama. Oh, uh, like I'm I'm sorry, I'm kinda of like getting emotional about this. But like it's totally it's before totally before, fine, uh,
5: brother. I get it.
8: <laughs> like a month before my mom died, my mama came visiting her, my brother, my auntie uncle. My mama was so so fragile. I asked my brother away from my mom. I said, bro, why you brought up a seat? And he said, uh Man, she said she had to come see her man. So, she passed right after, probably like two weeks after that. My mama fell getting on the bus coming up, and she could, she couldn't no longer no, no, no walk on her own. She she was on a stroller. My mama now spent hundreds of thousands of dollars trying to get me out of prison. My mama spent every waking hour she tried to get her son out of prison and and on her deathbed the night she died she told my brother and and, uh, her sister that's right above her don't let my son die in prison and my auntie promised her I'd never let him die in prison and my aunt did everything spent everything she had to spend to make sure I come home from prison when the Miller situation came up I was the first person to have a lawyer. Now, made sure I was the very first person to get a a, a paid attorney, and they have been giving me paid attorneys throughout my incarceration. So, the, so that's the financial and the emotional toll is just, you know, it's it, it, being afraid to to fully love somebody, a female, because you're in prison, and you're in prison. And you don't know. If I give you my all and you hurt me, you just leave me, that's gonna destroy me because I gave you my all. So I can't do that. No, I can you can come see me and everything, but and I can be there with you, but I'm not all the way there with you because I gotta go back and you go into a different world. And I don't
7: wanna be hurt
8: knowing that these people would give you doing this and doing that. So it's just like slavery. Don't, on that plantation, a man is broken down. On, a man and a, a black man and a black woman was broken down because you never know when you're going to be stripped of that woman that's sleeping next to you or those kids that she bore for you. So you always just got to be like living in this fear. So in prison, you just have to cut your emotions off. You got to get slavery. I'm not. I can't give myself totally to you because at any moment you're going to leave me because this life sentence is a life sentence. I'm sent here to die. And your life kind of like can take these horses. A man can just come and, and knock you off of your feet. And you're going to leave me because I'm not there with you nowhere. It. And it's like you've got to carry a load because in essence, we kids. People in society got to take care of us. We ain't taking care right. of of, of them,
4: and so we become
8: another burden to them we become another bill and some people love you enough to, to foot that bill but sometimes you can see the weight of that bill wearing on them and then and you'd be like damn this is going to be our last time coming to see me it's going to be our last time accepting this phone call you live with that with that fear
5: mm. so, I have one more question for you. This comes from Max himself, my my other co-host, Max Parthas. He wants to know <laughs> if you felt like you were a man before you were faced with the court situation. He's asking because he's been on his own since he was 14, and he thought he was a man when he was 14. He was totally wrong, but he didn't know that then. So he wants to know if that was like a wake-up call for you that you were not a man.
8: <laughs> in, in, in its own way because yes, I, I would say yes it, it definitely was a wake up call because now I'm faced with this fact yes I was acting like a, a, a grown man but now I'm faced with the fact that man, I can't even go buy a pack of cigarettes because I'm, I'm 16 I can't even get in the club because I'm 16 I can't get married without my parents I'm wrong. So now I'm looking at all this, and but now you're telling me I'm a man. Even if I beat this charge, I'm still not a man. If I go back into society, I'm I still, I'm still, I'm still grounded by these laws that you say that that determines that I'm not a man. But 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 then you are saying with a double standard to say, yeah, you are a man criminally, and that's wrong. You <laughs> that's wrong. So yeah, that reality is.
5: Wow Curtis I pass it back to you man Because I'll be asking the brother questions all night The stream will shut off on us And all of this stuff
6: <laughs> Man Terrence I want to um, first of all thank you for being brave enough To um, let our listeners Know the real nitty gritty Of what it feels like To go through something like What you've gone through And give you big kudos <clears throat> For coming out and being in your right mind Because at this point in your life, you it, you would be justified to be slap, raving, mad, crazy, right? Right. So the fact that you yes. can endure that and stand on your all ten, you know, ten toes down and do the things that you're doing and excelling out here. Um, Brother Yusuf, um, Terrence has nice things. Terrence um, carries himself as a very mature, upright, professional black man out here. So he's a standard bearer for people who sit. Um. Actually, be saying it's it's so hard because I'm I've, I'm I've, I've seeing what hard look like and it. Everybody got their own hard, but their depth and dark of depth into and, and darkness that they don't want to really walk. So, Terrence, thank you for coming on the show tonight. We only have a sure. few more um, minutes. Max Fartis, are you gonna come on here tonight? Because nah, I'm he he texted me. His, he
5: texted me his question.
6: He texted this question yeah, in. Yeah, that, that, um, that
5: question came from Max.
6: Corinne asked the question as well. I wasn't able to find that question. I was hoping that she sent it to you as well. Um, but I think it was basically answered in a lot of what Terrence um, was giving. Corinne, um, if you wanted to ask him another question before we get off your um, – you could call in anytime you Anya was like, all right, Yusuf,
5: what's next? So – uh, is he still with us? Okay. Uh, yeah, uh, just anything that you have going on, any organizations you're part of, if you want to give out the information so how people can reach out and if you want to assist, if somebody wants to offer you a job, anything, you know, uh, just any information that you want to share with the listening audience.
8: All right. I have a, an organization called Pipes which stands for Priorities, Intentions, and Practical Exchanges. We have a website called Pipes with the number four, change.org. So you can always contact me there. My uh, my Facebook is T E E W I N N. My Instagram is street underscore educated. I don't know my Twitter and all that, but those, Wait, you uh, said account...
5: see see so you have that southern twang. So did you say street or screet?
8: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Screet. S T R E E T. I ain't gonna get okay. it right.
9: <laughs>
0: so, Thank you from yeah. it.
8: So and um um I'll be going to uh, speak before United Nations in Switzerland October the tenth through the nineteenth about prison conditions, racial disparity, racial discrimination, and solitary confinement in prisons, And we're trying to change those conditions. So this will be the second time that I'm going to, to Geneva, Switzerland, to speak before for, before the United Nations. And um, so my organization here, we're doing what we can to stop the conditions of prison. And uh, an organization that we partnered with yesterday filed a, a lawsuit to end the, the slavery practices of field work in our prisons in Louisiana well, throughout the country but we fighting in Louisiana for Louisiana so, and that's like in conjunction with what Curtis is doing we're trying to change the Louisiana Constitution to, to take the slavery clause out so we're doing it to stop the hard labor of field work for free in prison so um, those are a few things that we're doing
5: well, I applaud you so much for that brother uh, Keep up the great work Thank you for coming in We're definitely going to have you back in the future You know this is a great conversation okay. We just unfortunately ran out of time But thank you so much And wishing you the best in all of your endeavors Make sure everyone goes to check that out pipes And that's the number four Pipes As in a lead pipe pipes There's also a donation button there too, so make sure y'all send a donation their way as well. So, Curtis, this is the time when we kind of like get into our closing comments. Uh, It was a great, great episode, man. Uh, It was already great, and then uh, Brother Terrence just took it to another level when it got to that point, man, because I had no idea we were going to be getting that this evening. Mm -hmm.
6: Yes, sir, and that will be in our archive for people that for sure. really want to understand case studies on um, the conditioning, the subjective reasoning of the um, juvenile going through um, the Louisiana criminal justice system as well as any other condition of slavery that you, they might find themselves in. It's traumatizing. It's a crime against humanity. It was a crime against humanity in the 1800s, and it's a crime against humanity now. So we have a lot of work to do at the Abolish Slavery National Network, and all of our um, more than 15 states that have legislation, legislation, or is about to have legislation to change the uh, slavery exception laws, because this is not just about mass incarceration, people. It's about the conditions of being property. So that's why you could be allowed to be. Um, beaten and um, women going without hygienic care or men that are pushed to their limits in the field, sometimes working 15 to 16 hours a day until they they just get sick and die. This is the fight that we're fighting, and we're so glad to have Terrence here to give his testimony of what he had to deal uh, with, the loss of his mother, the missed opportunities at Romance, the fact that he couldn't um, be a productive person in the lives of his people and was just um, having them throw money into a, a abyss to try to get him back to safety or freedom. And, Yusuf, it's been a great night. Thank you and Max for allowing me once again to participate in the hottest show on abolition um, in the world, Abolition Today. And so with that, I'll give you the mic, please.
5: Peace, brother. You did an excellent job. It was just excellent conversation. Uh, it's so much more information to share. Most of the information is going to be on our Abolition Today page. You'll find all the cases, uh, Roper v. Simmons, Graham v. Florida, Miller v. Alabama, Montgomery v. Louisiana, Jones v. Mississippi. All of that will be up on the page as well as some other information that we didn't get the opportunity to get into tonight because I wanted us to stay sort of like on a one-track mind this evening just to strictly stick towards this topic of the uh, the juvenile lifers. Uh, and we see. You know, they were labeled the children of perdition. And thankfully... Uh, that Miller decision came out You see, you've heard a first-hand account Of uh, what happened Like, it was just so great hearing that Like, their mindset inside When Roper first happened That just gave them some hope It didn't even apply to them But it just gave them some hope Like saying, wow, there's an opportunity for something coming And then Graham hit and they're like Oh, man, we really got a chance and then when Miller hit, that's when the big celebration went on, although it wasn't even retroactive at the point, just the mere fact that it happened, and that opened the door for them. So it was just great having him call in and share that with us. So thank you again, Curtis. Thank you again, Brother Terrence, for calling in. Uh, we want to get into our closing comments, or well, we did our closing comments. want to thank our sponsors and partners. Jailhouse Lawyers Speak, the I Ubuntu Prison Advocacy Network, SEMA URGE, that's Quakers Uplifting Racial Justice, the Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center, Prismatic Dreams, and the Abolish Slavery National Network. Remember to subscribe to our YouTube channel. That's youtube.com slash abolition today. You definitely want to check out that abolitionist music playlist. It's better than any playlist out there. You also want to go to our Facebook page, that's Abolition Today, and on Twitter, we are at Abolition Today, the number one. And remember, Abolition Today is available not only at AbolitionToday.org, but on all major podcast platforms. Also, follow the Abolish Slavery National Network. They're at Abolish, oh, I'm sorry, at Abolition Nation on all platforms. Remember to join the movement at Slavery. U.S. to become part of the solution. Final announcements: We have Tales from the Plantation, hosted by Samuel Nathaniel Brown. He uh, did a his latest episode was this past Wednesday. You definitely want to check out that conversation. Uh, he's every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 Central, 5 Mountain, and 4 Pacific, right here on the Abolition Today platform. We have something very special. Tonight for the Bridge in the Gap Normally when we do the Bridge in the Gap We play something from the ancestors first And then we follow that up with something from the present But this week we're going to reverse the order So I have a poem called Outcast by Xavier McElrath Bay He wrote this when he was 16 years old Serving life without the possibility of parole And he was in solitary confinement He was resentenced after the Miller decision or or after the Miller decision and fast forward October 1st 2023 he will become the executive director of the campaign for fair sentencing of youth we also have a track from a woman by the name of Comfort Williams so it's as seen through the eyes of Comfort Williams it's a vocal rendition of a story that's mentioned in the life of Frederick Douglass It's through the eyes of Comfort Washington, she was born a slave, or she was born enslaved. She was his first teacher, and at this time, she was a free woman, still living in Baltimore after the Civil War. This tribute to Frederick Douglass from a performance by noted R&B and session singer Joyce D. was written and produced by New York City singer-songwriter Kevin Kane. Kevin's acoustic guitar and string bass is matched with these heart-wrenching vocals and tied together by jazz violinist violin, ugh, violinist Jim Nolitz Soaring Accompaniment. So you're going to really enjoy that. And so next Sunday, we'll play one of our classic from the archives because myself, Max, Curtis, and other ASNM members will be attending the Congressional Black Caucus in Washington. The slavery abolitionists are coming. The slavery abolitionists are coming. So yes, the slavery abolitionists will be in Washington, D.C. We'll be back live, God willing, on September 1st, on I'm sorry, October 1st, with another masterclass on slavery abolition. So until then, think about abolition today. Peace and blessings be upon you all.
0: Abolition. Abolition.
5: Abolition.
11: We are the nobodies, the outcasts, the forsaken, and the other labels that society has created for us. Nevertheless, we are people of genius with diverse talents and mental abilities, and no stigma or classification can restrain this. For from the depths of this pit ascends the rawness of reality. And unlike Descartes, with his voluntary doubt, I think, therefore I am, we are forced to rediscover the truths of life. I'm conscious, therefore I think I am. For every prisoner eventually learns about the nature of non-being. He knows what is meant to exist and yet not exist, all at the same time. Therefore, thinking does not make existence self-evident. It only implies the possibility of it. He can think himself dead to the world, as many would have him, or he can, by thinking otherwise, declare his existence through the actualization of his potentials.
12: hi my name is Jeanette Smith I am a slavery abolitionist some of you may know me I'm doing this recording because I would like to ask if any of you can help with some financial assistance Max and you do not like to ask for money so I would like to ask on their behalf because they and other abolitionists pull money out of their own pockets and this is so important so if you can help you can find the information at the top of the Facebook
7: page for abolition today Thank you. If we'd known you all were going to be this much trouble, we would have picked our own fucking cotton. Abolition.
0: Abolition. 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 Abolition.